Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. A few weeks ago, or months ago, excuse me, I was um, preparing for the next uh, series of sermons, um, and I like to get out ahead. So I'm working currently on the next summer series, the fall series, that will lead us to Advent, which is Christmas time, and then January. So my mind is there. But in the midst of preparing in advance like that, sometimes God just highlights things on your heart. Um, 
So like last July, I knew we were gonna talk about Yes, You, the identity series we just did. I, I had that in my mind and I was really excited to do that series because I think all of us need to be rooted in our identity. I think Paul talks a lot about it in Ephesus clearly, in Ephesians, excuse me, and all throughout the scripture. We need to know who we are in Christ. And what's great about the series of identity is it's about you. And I don't know about you, but I love talking about myself. I love organizing my life around myself. And I know most of us do. In fact, our society and culture is designed around self. It's designed to please and make you happy. And that's kind of the culture that we're swimming in unintentionally. Um, but as I started thinking about our church, I started thinking about what do we need to hear? Because sometimes I want to preach uh, prophetically and allowing God to speak to where our community is at. What do we need to hear as a community? Um, Sometimes it's, it comes with like, hey, these are things that Jesus talks about. Let's talk about those things. Sometimes it's where are we at as a church. And as I was evaluating our church, as I was thinking about our church, I just, God was, I just saw him, his pleasure over our community. I, that he's pleased with how we serve as a church, that we're missional, that we uh, have great community. We have 16 community groups that share life together all over the city, that we, um, we, we have a, a culture of the Holy Spirit I'm seeing it more and more. Years ago, uh, if we called people forward in response, nobody would come forward. It was so awkward. I mean, and I was the most awkward guy in the room. I'd be like, hey, if this is you, come forward. And I'd sit there going, not a, another Sunday where no one responds. And that's okay, but we just kept going for it because we knew that God wanted to build that type of culture, that type of church, that we would respond to the Spirit. And as I looked at all the amazing things, the, the generous lifestyles that we have of giving generously and, and being focused outward, um, God highlighted worship and he, he he was speaking to me about worship and practically on Sundays he was just saying when 50 or more percent of the church is not there to worship that says something about the heart of the church and so I was convicted by that convicted in my own life so I just pursued this uh, this concept that I began to read I began literally waking up and worshiping in the mornings more and more and and trying to dedicate my life uh, in worship. And I realized that we needed to talk about worship because worship is a really big deal in the scripture. So I'm, today I'm just gonna talk about worship. Over the next six weeks, we're gonna talk about worship. What's hard about this sermon is that it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. And that's hard for us because we don't think naturally about other things other than ourselves, right? And so I know this is gonna feel heavy and some of you, uh, it's okay. Just allow this to be a provocative, maybe um, encouragement to adjust things slightly. Are you with me? You guys with me on the journey? Good, because I've got my th fourth cup of coffee this morning and I woke up at 4.45 today. I just, no alarm clock. I was like ready to go. And I, I headed to the office and I just started with worship and, and started reading what I wrote and I'm ready for this. So I thought, let's do this. It says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Um, this is your true and proper worship. I thought let's just start as a church together. We did this in the first service. I wrote it down here. I'm gonna write it on this side and see who's better. But um, just kidding. What, what is worship? Can we just write up a definition together? It sound like fun. What's worship? I'll come down here. What is worship? Just throw it out. I know you guys are, you're not going to get it wrong unless you're, you're wrong. I'll just tell you you're wrong. So what is worship? <laughs> Praising God. That was the first one in the last service. Praising God. What else? What? Work. Work, Work is worship. I like it. What else? A response to God. Res a response. Were you in the first service? Okay, response to God. Dang it, that's my final point. Um, you are a prophet. What? 
sacrifice. Worship is relational, something to do with relationship, okay? Love, worship is love. A way of life? Trust? Giving, what did you say? Somebody said something? Declaring worth, that's good. Service, this is great. What, thanking God? You guys are way better than the first service. (laughs) What about singing songs? Is worship singing? Why do we sing songs in churches? Do you ever think about that? We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Singing, I'll just put that out there. What else? What? Incense? Incense is worship. You're right. Do you come from an old, like, higher, like, big church, like Catholic church? No. No? I love the incense in like Anglican, Orthodox church. I, I used to go there for class just to smell the incense. I would just sit on the edge, like right here, because they'd bring, have you ever been to those? They'd bring down, it represents the, the spirit and presence of God. Oh, I want the incense, but people would think I'm weird. <laughs> they already do. So anything else that it's burning on your heart? Prayer. Okay, so can we say that worship is praising God? It's incense. It's work. It's a response to God. It's sacrifice. It's relational. It's love. It's a way of life. It is trust and giving and declaring worth to God. It's service to God. It's thanking God. It's singing to God. Is that helpful? So all of these things are worship. So as we begin to talk about worship, here are a couple of definitions that we have. Worship uh, means to ascribe worth. Uh, It's the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity to give worth to something or to honor someone or something. That's all, um, all these words represent worship. So we're talking about a very large subject. Would you agree? Because we're talking about singing and giving and way of life. And so all of these things. And so Paul says um, in, this, in this particular verse that therefore um, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. This is your true, this is your true and proper singing songs, adoration, all these things. Are you with me? Okay, we're kind of there. Um, but in the Hebrew language, worship means to fall down. And I love the image, because I love pictures, I love, I love de- illustration, if you, if you know me at all. But it's the idea that when you ascribe worth, you fall down. And I want you to think of a, someone coming into the presence of a king or a queen. One, in ancient customs, you would never in a million years come empty-handed. You always come bringing something. And worship is to fall down like this. So you come in the presence of a king and you ascribe worth and value. And this, this posture is the description of what worship is. It's surrender. It's fully devoted. It's laying yourself down at their disposal. They can do whatever they want. That is what it means to worship. So when we talk about worship, we're talking about all of these things. What is worship? Now, um, I want to play with this idea of worship because it's fascinating to me. As I prepare sermons, I'm asking a million questions. If you've ever been to our basics class, I talk about how to, how to interpret scripture. And for me, it always begins with asking lots and lots and lots of questions about the te- text. And the question that came to mind is, well, what is true and proper worship? You ever think about that? Like, so... Um, What does your Bible say? My Bible says true and proper worship. What does yours say? Does anyone have spiritual act of worship? Spiritual Spiritual acts. So what do you have, the old NIV? 
1984 version of NIV. The 2011 is true and proper. Uh, some, of, some of you might have, what, what other words do you have in your Bible? Let's just practice. What is it? Holy and acceptable worship. What else? Spiritual service, right? This is your tr- spiritual service. So in Paul, when Paul writes in Romans, the word for worship is actually service. It has to do with ritual rites. It has to do with um, you bringing a sacrifice to put on the altar. This is your service to God. But he says the word true and proper, which means holy and acceptable. It's actually, those are all very unhelpful in proper translation. The Greek word, it means logical, sensible, or reasonable worship. It means to, uh, in other words, that Paul says, hey, offer your lives, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. This is the only kind of worship that makes sense. This is the only sensible worship that you can have or do. Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is the only logical conclusion for you kind of worship. Are you with me? So true and proper is reasonable, intelligent, fitting, sensible. So the question is, is there worship out there that is not proper and fitting for God? You think about that? That was my next question. I was like, okay, well, if this is the only thing that's fitting and sensible, then what's not sensible? What's not a logical kind of worship? And then I started to answer that question, and I realized most of the Old Testament talks about what's not fitting in worship for God. I didn't realize that until I started asking these questions about worship. Now hang with me, because where we land is how to respond in worship. What do we do? What is response in worship? But I want to get us there through looking at what uh, worship actually is and why Paul takes worship so seriously in the church, because he takes it very, very seriously. In fact, he will say that the issue with humanity is not sin first. It's an issue of misdirected worship. So we're gonna answer that in a second, but what is misdirected or what is, uh, what kind of worship is not fitting for God? Well, in Isaiah, you, first of all, you read in, in uh, the 10 commandments, God says, don't have any other gods before me. And then he says, have no other images of God. Don't worship idols. The second commandment has to do with worshiping false gods. He's like, don't do that. Don't worship false gods. And then most of the Old Testament is an ex- are examples of how Israel goes off the map and begins to worship false gods and other idols and follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of Yahweh. And you have the entire Old Testament uh, uh, prophets reminding Israel of who they are and who, are they, who they're supposed to worship. And there's example after example of how they're messing it up, how they're not actually worshiping God in the right context or in the right way. And so, I could go, I I just found so many examples, but I'll just give you a couple. Isaiah, this is a famous one, where Isaiah uh, kind of calls out the nation of Israel and says, look, you guys, you, you guys have these sacred days, like fasting days, where you're dedicating yourself to the Lord. You're, you're showing up to these worship gatherings. But basically, I don't care about that stuff because you're not taking care of the poor. You're neglecting the needy. You're refusing to, to keep the Sabbath holy. And so the prophet of Isaiah calls him out uh, and, and calls out the nation and says, your worship is not even being heard by God because you're not living out what God wants you to live out. 
They're literally being disobedient to God's way. So what's improper worship? Disobedience to God. But if you're saying, well, I'm not living a life of disobedience. I'm okay. I'd agree. Yeah, that's great. But then I read Amos. And I got really startled in Amos. If you've, if you've ever read Amos, it is, uh, it is just startling because it's, it's about God's judgment on Israel right before the, uh, the, the northern part of the kingdom is just destroyed by the Babylonians. And what you have in Amos is this, verse one of chapter six. This is where I was like, whoa, this is getting intense. He, Amos says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You're not deliberately being disobedient. You're simply watching the, the, the disobedience happen. You're not participating in wickedness. You're just sitting by. And then it goes on in verse four, and it says, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You surround yourself in comfort, is one translation. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. In other words, you are surrounding yourself with comfort and safety, and you're only concerned about yourself. Can any of us relate? Ouch is right. Ouch, that's a great way to describe how I've been feeling all week. I'll tell you, to be honest, all week, it's just been repentance for me. I've blown it. I just keep recognizing that, man, I'm blown it. Not that God's heavy, it's all about his grace, but when I started thinking about my worship, I was just having this conversation, I was thinking, well, like, I don't wanna put my hands up, what will people think? I don't wanna, I'm not a guy that gets that emotional, so I'm not gonna get on my knees and get emotional. It's all about me, cause it's all about me. It's all about, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's not about, I mean, that's really how I sing every day of the week. And I'm gonna get real serious for a second. I am a glutton. I'm a glutton. And I don't think gluttony is eating too much food. That's not what I do, obviously. Although I do eat a lot of food. I am so particular with the kinds of food that I eat. I eat choice meat, the best sushi, the best burritos. I am led by my cravings and my emotions are led by those cravings. And that is idol worship. When my brothers and sisters are here, hungry for their next meal or around the world, and I'm consumed with the privilege of eating whatever I want without considering my brothers and sisters, I'm missing something. That's a side note. That's just me allowing you to be the... Um, Confession booth, thank you so much for listening. True and proper worship. So we read in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of things that God is displeased with. And, and the people in, in uh, the Old Testament are judged because the people of God are judged in the Old Testament because they're missing it. And their, their, their worship is not true and proper. So worship is a big deal. And like I said already, Paul believes that the, the uh, human condition, the problem with the humanity is not primarily an issue of sin, but an issue of misdirected worship. And that's why in chapter 12, he makes this massive point. But go to chapter one of Romans. I wanna, I wanna show you what Paul does here. Um, and this is helpful for us to just think about ways we can respond in worship. Ways we can respond in worship. Verse 18 of chapter one. Paul says this in the beginning. So he's gonna, for 11 chapters, he's just gonna go and make this great systematic argument about who God is, what he's done, and in view of all of that, how we can respond in worship. But it begins in chapter one, verse 18. The wrath of God is being 
revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And this is what he means. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, just to summarize what he's saying, look, brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as atheism. What Paul's saying is no one's without excuse. You can see that there is a creator in creation. And the more we learn about science, the more it proves that there is a divine, intelligent creator. I mean, if you study uh, uh, current quantum theorists, they're, they're describing science. Like the most, the most outrageous scientists in the world describe science and, and the way the world interacts as a relationship of energy. A relationship of energy is what the most brilliant minds can describe the things that make up the things that make up the things in the world, the, the quarks. Isn't that fascinating? A relationship of energy? Does that sound like Genesis 1 to you? Okay, anyways, that's just me. Anyway, so science reveals, you go to the Grand Canyon, you go to the beach, you see the sunset, you see that there has to be some type of crater. We are without excuse. That's what he's saying. But this is the key. And this is where the problem came into the world. Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him or as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So he says, look, they didn't give glory to God or give thanks. So the problem with the world began with ingratitude to God, giving thanks and that led to uh, in the exchange of glorifying God to glorifying things that were made by human beings and, and animals and created things. So they began to worship idols. Idols, idolatry, ingratitude leads to idolatry. And then it continues and it says, um, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. And then he goes on to talk about becoming enslaved to that immorality. So let me just summarize uh, chapter one. He says the problem with the world and the corruption, where it began, is with ingratitude. We didn't give thanks to God. He deserved the thanks. That led us to worshiping other things. And you see the word reptile or, or animals, and you think, I don't worship animals. But if I said, replace that with success, your job, your body, your career, your family, your comfort, your dreams, we worship those things over God. That's idolatry. And if we worship those things, God hands us over to those things. And that leads us to a life of immorality. When, our, when we're pursuing our dreams and our career, we will find a world that we value and those things will lead to immorality, anything outside of perfection that we are designed because we were designed to worship God. But he gave us over to our desires. You worship sex and pleasure, you will become addicted to those things. Worship money and power. You become obsessed with those things. So that leads to immorality, a life where you're cutting corners, you're doing things that you weren't designed to do. And that leads to enslavement, imprisonment later on, where you have no control over what you do because God just handed you over. So the issue is humanity is enslaved and it doesn't start with immorality. It doesn't just start with idolatry. It starts with ingratitude to God. Are you with me? It starts with worship. 
Worship is the issue that Paul identifies as the problem with the world. In Romans chapter one, Romans one, and he argues that um, misdirected worship leads us to a place of despair, pain, isolation, loneliness, wrath outside of God's way. Are you with me? You guys with me? The little one's with me. I'm so glad she's with me or he. From the mouth of babes comes the praise of the Lord. Yeah, I love it. So another way to say what Paul's saying here, first of all, just I need to recognize this, is that everybody worships. Worshiping is not some religious thing. Worshiping is not what Christians do. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. To be human is to worship. Now, I want to take a step back, and what does that mean? Well, we just define worship in all sorts of ways, but one of the things that we said is that worship is ascribing worth to something. It's about um, honoring, or, or it's about ascribing value to something. So if we worship, we're, we're, the, uh, we're responding to what we value most in life. Now, valuing things or treasuring things, that's part of what it means to be human. But as humans, we also value things greater than other things. So for me, I value certain things, certain people. Um, so I, I, I spend my money based on those values. I save things based on the way they, like I collect all sorts of things. So I have like tickets to my first concert that I took Alex to when we were dating. She would never keep those in a million years. Why I value those things. Like does anyone here keep stuff? And then their spouses are like, why did you keep this? And it's like, it's like this, this torn piece of paper that has like a scribble on it. But for you, it has so much significance that if you threw it away, it would be like a cardinal sin. But for them, it's just a piece of trash. It's because we all have a value system that we base our lives off of. And so when we worship, we're responding to what we value most in life. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about what you value most in life. And just start thinking about who or what it is that you value. And maybe pull out your phone. Really, seriously, let's just do this together. I'll pull out my iPad. Um, I'm not gonna move it, but I did this in the last. So pull out your phone and go to your calendar. Let's just start in our calendar. Or, or if you want, you have a piece of paper, write down Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Just look at your schedule. Does anyone here keep a calendar? I don't know how you can survive in this world without a calendar. So let's say for me, I'll just tell you what I, so this last week, it was like I worked 11 days straight from Mother's Day till Thursday because we had that weekend and I, I couldn't take a day off. I worked 11 days, like 110 hours in 11 days. That's way too much. What does that say about me? Workaholic. Workaholic. <laughs> Says something about what I value, doesn't it? Uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's, there, you, I would put like Ezra, my son, I, I hung out with him every day in the morning, in the evening. Sometimes I came home for lunch. I had a date night with Alex twice. Um, I worked late into the, to, I did emails. I, uh, I worked out a few times. I went on a couple four mile runs. I'm getting back into shape. That's a good thing. Um, I didn't do anything for fun over those 11 days. Um, I took a half a day for Sabbath during that time. Um, Things that occupied my mind, I was really concerned that, our, that hosting the people last week, that they would have a good time, that our church would respond well when we had our friends from the UK. I was concerned about what you would think. Now, now what does yours say? Work, family, 
did you guys go out to eat? Did you, what kind of food did you eat? How many times did you buy coffee out? Uh, okay, did anybody, so write all that stuff out and then just ask your question. At the end of the week, how did you feel? You feel rejuvenated? Did you feel more loved? Did you feel loving? Did you feel grace and joy? I mean, seriously, peace. Did you feel a sense of purpose and meaning? Tired. Anyone feel anxious? Let's just, let's actually do this. Anyone feel anxious? Just keep your hand up. Anyone feel depressed at the end of the week? Keep your hands up. We'll just keep it for everyone. That way we, we don't have to, oh yeah, I was depressed. <laughs> anyone here an introvert? Just kidding. <laughs> okay, uh, did anyone feel confused or disoriented by the end of this week? Anyone feel like the need to check out on Netflix? Just, I just seen a, <laughs> yeah, right? Because we have been worshiping things that lead us to disorientation, to anxiety, to worry, to stress. Because we've been worshiping the things we value most. The way you could say it is this, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. He'll make this case that you become what you worship. N.T. Wright says this. I love this quote and I just wanted to read. I, I don't usually le- read long quotes, but this is so good. It's from Simply Christian by uh, Tom Wright. There are two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Anyone here want to just confess that? Just put your hand up and just say, I repent from being a human calculator machine. I'm serious. Some of us are here and life is all about money. And at the end of the day, you will never have enough. Some of us are here and we worship sex and we become obsessed with our own attractiveness and prowess. Man, I want to pause there. I'm going back to the gym and I see how easy it is to get obsessed with yourself at a gym. I don't go to a gym that has mirrors though. If you're at 24, you're just literally in the mirror like this. And I can't stand it. I'm like, really, dude? You're just gonna stare. Does that motivate you? It does. It does for some people. There's like a hashtag called swole. Get swole. I had to look it up. It means swollen, just so you know. (laughs) Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. And now most of us, we don't know about power. But we, I bet all of us struggle with this. The moment you feel like, hey, they said they were gonna see this at nine o'clock and it's 9.20, I'm here with my party. I'm gonna make sure they know. Someone cuts me off on the four or five. I'm just gonna get right in front of them, go a little bit faster and then slow down right in front of them. I'm gonna make sure they know. I'm waving. <laughs> they know. that. What is that? Power. How many of you have to have the last word in your marriage? Oh, yeah. That's definitely my wife. Just kidding, that's me. <laughs> She's not here to defend. She does win every argument though. Um, so when you worship these things, you can put anything there. Your career, you become obsessed, your business, your, your dreams, your, um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking, man, we got to talk. We're going to do a series on worship. Do we, th- does our culture even know how to worship? And then I realized as soon as a new iPhone comes out, there is a line for the iPhone days before. 
We don't, we don't mind waiting for that to happen, but we'll show up 30 minutes late with a cup of coffee to get here on Sunday to worship the creator of the universe, the lover of humanity, the redeemer and savior of all things. No, it's cool. I got my six, though. So what happens when you worship? I'm a little, yeah, I'm just going to let it happen. It's just going to come out. I'm just going off of your definition right here. It's all your words. Uh, So what happens when you worship the creator God whose plan to rescue the world and put it to to rights has been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer comes in the second golden rule. Because you were made in God's image, worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at the God in whose image you were made, you do indeed grow. You discover more of what it means to be fully alive. Ah, that's true. That's what Paul's getting at. The only thing that that makes sense is to respond to God in worship. Nothing else will ever empower you to live a more free life, a life that is more fully you than any other life you could have discovered outside of God a life that is full of peace and joy and adventure and risk and hospitality and generosity and blessing. That is only found when your life is directed towards God in worship. Anything else is not fitting, period. It's all misdirected and it will lead you towards slavery. That's what Paul argues because your worship matters and worship is simply a response to what you value most. There's nothing wrong with valuing working out, eating well, hanging out with friends, having a family, pursuing your career, being ambitious with your dreams. There's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's where you find your meaning and significance and purpose, it's an idol. Take that away for a moment. Take that thing that you love more than anything else away. How, do you, how will you respond? One of my good friends, um, very athletic, very competitive, successful, great family, makes a ton of money. Um, he's, uh, we, we did CrossFit together for a while. He would always beat me, better surfer than I am, better looking, hard to believe. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, he, he hurt his back and his hip, and it's been seven weeks now. And you know what's coming out? He's limping, he's, he has all sorts of pain. He can't surf, he can't work out. You know what's happening to him? His identity is being rocked. He's realized that his identity has been based on his performance, not on being a child of God. That he feels comfortable with God when he can perform all these things, when he can get time away and surf and have his freedom and and drive long distances in the car because he's gonna make more money by going to new places. And that's literally been taken and stripped from him. And now he's having to wrestle and recognize that he's put all this value, meaning, and significance in all the other things. And that's been stripped and he's left with himself before this loving God. He's realized that he's put all of his identity in other places and now he's he's receiving his belovedness from this God. He's waking up and worshiping He's devoting himself in new ways and he's found a greater purpose, greater significance in meeting because his identity is rooted in God, not in all the other stuff. Because where you direct your worship matters. Worship is a response to what you value most in life. And so Paul writes 
at the end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 12, after 11 chapters, 11 long syst uh, systematic arguments of, of building this case for the church in Rome of, of who God is and what he's like and what he's done, 11 chapters. And then he says uh, in, this, in this book, he transitions from all this great stuff about God and he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, this is the response you have. Offer everything back to God in worship. Therefore, because humanity was enslaved to their desires, because God is just and righteous, and he acted in human history to restore and redeem what was lost, because you were once enemies of God, because, uh, but God gave his son for you, because you were once dead to sin, because you were bound to the law, because you are now made alive in Christ, because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because you have his spirit, because you're more than conquerors, because you, nothing can separate you from the love of God, because you have access to the Father and you get to call him Abba Daddy, because he called you, justified you, because he grafted you into his community, because he's done everything for you, worship worship with everything you have. Worship is a response to God. Worship is a response to, the, to God. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. Worship is about him. It is not about you. It's not about what you look like when you worship. It's about what God looks like when you worship. It's not about how much you give when that offering buck bucket comes around. It's about how much God has already given for you. It is a response to the love that you have received in God. And the question is, how much love have you received from God? How much love have you received from God? That should be the, the factor, the equation for what kind of extravagant worship you give on Sunday morning or on Monday morning or on Tuesday evening. It's how much love have you received from God? That's what worship is. So when we gather and sing, I know it's not comfortable. When is it ever comfortable to sing? Seriously, I was in jazz choir and even then it was not comfortable. I've done musical theater. It is not comfortable to sing. It's not easy to lift your hands. It's not easy or comfortable to get down on your knees, but some of us have the ability and the physical capacity to get down on our knees while others of us can't because this is what worship means. How much love have you received? How much love have you received from the Father? That's the question you need to ask yourself. And that's the question we wanna answer over the next six weeks as we learn how to respond as a community, not just through community and love, not just through justice, not just through, not just through offering our finances, but when we come together as the people of God that call the garden home, we come together on Sunday mornings anticipating, I cannot wait for that strum, I cannot wait for that beat, I cannot wait to see what the worship team, what songs they're bringing, because I've got a whole list of songs that have been on my heart all week. I'm bringing it. How much love have you, have you received from the Father? I want to end with a story that illustrates this. And if you um, have a Bible, close it. Don't go there. And actually, don't even put it on the screen. I'm just going to read it. I think this, this story illustrates it for us. It's in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I was thinking about how do we lead into worship. Why don't I get the worship team up here now um, so we can, we can go right into response. I'm just gonna read this. Maybe close your eyes and I want you to think about this story being real because this, this happened in human history. 
This was a person. It says this in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. What kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 days wages and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered had not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she had poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. They began to ask, who is this who forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Story is worship. At some point in her life, this woman met Jesus. And she had heard that he was dining at this particular attack, this Pharisee's house. And so she didn't first go running to Jesus to get a spot around the table, which was the custom, um, poor individuals and, and, and kind of the lower caste or lower ca- uh, uh, class would, would stand around in the outside courtyard of a table when a meal of the elite were be- was being had. And their goal was simply to, to maybe get some crumbs from the table or, or learn some wisdom from the conversation, but they would never in a million years interact with the guests. That's not what was going on. But she had heard that Jesus was there. She doesn't go there first. She goes home and gets an alabaster jar of perfume. That would have been worth over a year's worth of wages for her very valuable. And most likely that was a dowry that her family gave her to bring into a marriage if she was married. And when her husband divorced her or her husband died, she would take that back with her. And that was her 401k, her insurance policy, everything she had that kept her from the forces outside when her body would give up because it says that she was a sinner and that's polite. She was a prostitute. And she had met Jesus at some point. And rather than just going to see him, she goes and gets the most expensive thing, the most valuable treasure possession she has, runs to him and stands behind him. And she begins to cry. Not just cry, tears are flowing. And she realizes in the midst of hysteria that she's wetting his feet. She doesn't know what to do, but the only thing sensible, she gets to her knees, takes down her hair and wipes his feet. That would have been as offensive as a woman taking off her blouse. It was that provocative and sexual in first century context. And while she's down there, she doesn't know what else to do. She takes the perfume, her 401k, her insurance, her retirement, and just pours it out on Jesus's feet as she weeps hysterically. And Jesus says to everyone else, do you see this woman? Of course they saw her. They could smell her. Jesus was the only one that saw her. And the question he had for 
Simon, the religious, who would love more? Who would love more? And this woman had experienced the radical forgiveness, the radical generosity, and the radical love of God expressed in Christ through forgiveness. And all she could do is respond with everything she had. And so Garden Church, how much love have you received from the Father through Jesus on the cross? How much love have you received from God? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Our hearts are open. Our hearts are open.